Are you ready? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now let's get this straight from the start. There are a few pet peeves that I have, especially related to the book of Revelation, and the number one is this. How many revelations are there in this book? Any guesses? One. It is not the book of revelations. It's the book of revelation. It is one revelation. And what is that revelation? Actually, it's a who. Who is that revelation? It's Jesus Christ. This is the revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. Not the revelations. And I know that that's, you know, people just kind of say that because we get used to it. But this is a single revelation. Understand as we go into this book that though we are going to have many things revealed, though we're going to understand things maybe we never understood before, the point of this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate, final, decisive, and absolute revelation of His person. And understanding that, in my opinion, is almost worth the whole book. Revelation 19.10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's the point. He's the purpose. He's the reason. He is the bottom line for this entire book. And I would say for the whole Bible as well. But understand as we get into Revelation, this is about Jesus. The greatest blessing a lover of Jesus can have is the revelation of Jesus Christ in their life. The furthering revelation, to know Him more, to know Him better. That's what we seek after, isn't it? As Christians, that's what we hunger for. It's what we long for, to know Jesus better. And to get the great blessing that comes with knowing Him. By the way, in fact, did you know that this is the stated desire of this book? To be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, God is speaking to Abraham, and he said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. We talked about that this morning, especially related to Abraham's offspring, Israel. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and God says, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be upon your people. And Ephesians 1, verse 3, if this all wasn't enough, blows my mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 3, Revelation chapter 1, let's read this again. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So I ask again, are you ready? Are you ready to get blessed? Because that's what happens when you study Revelation. This is the only book in the entire Bible that promises, guarantees a blessing to those who read it, who study it, who heed these words. And if you stick through this, You will be blessed. I absolutely guarantee it. And we need to understand something about blessing. The blessing of God is real blessing. It is legitimate blessing. Not the so-called good fortune that tends to happen here on planet Earth. 
A few years ago, about three years back actually, um, right around the time that we started the first Revelation series. And then I taught, I taught this two years ago, and it's no, four years ago now, I guess, is when we started, or three years. Anyway, it's been a while. But when we first started it, I had just, Charlotte and I had just gone out and bought some new furniture through Klaus's Sofa Factory, which has since gone bankrupt. As a matter of fact, we bought the furniture and waited for a while for it and then called to find out why it wasn't coming and discovered that they had gone bankrupt. And we had already put down like $700 on this whole furniture set, this couch and love seat and chair and ottoman, all the stuff. Well, the furniture ended up coming. We got it. And I gave them my visa number. We went down to the warehouse to pick it up because they were literally shutting everything down. And they were saying they didn't even think it was going to come in. It was on the last truck out of Pennsylvania. And we got the furniture. And I gave them my Discover card to pay for it. And they did the little thing and I signed it and they put it all in and they just stacks and stacks of paperwork all over this factory. And I kept checking my Discover uh, bill and it just wasn't showing up. After a month, after two months, after three months, it never showed up. I called the number, the only number I had for Cross the Sofa Factory. It was a number that immediately forwarded me to a lawyer's office. And I left, a num- I left my number and my address with him. And I said, hey, listen, I bought this furniture from Crosses. I know they're bankrupt, but I still owe like 1400 bucks on this thing. So please contact me. They never did. So I got this entire furniture set for 700 bucks. It was worth well over $2,000. It was great. It was a real blessing. But there's no guarantee. There's no warranty on this furniture now because Crosses is gone. If something goes wrong, we're stuck. And that's the kind of blessing that you can count on in the world. No guarantees. On a more serious note, one of our elders, Mike Freeman, has flown for Delta Airlines all of his life. You all know Delta just went bankrupt. Just filed. And on the day of their filing, they called Mike up and they said, Hey, listen, your pension stops in 24 hours. Can you imagine that? You work your whole entire life. You're promised this. You sign up for it. They say, yeah, we got a great pension plan for you. It's going to be there when you retire. Mike retired just a year ago, and now his pension stopped. That's the kind of blessing you can count on in the world. But Jesus says, not as the world gives, do I give. With God's blessings, you never go bankrupt. Your eternal pension will never be withdrawn or thrown away. It is always there. The blessing of God is real blessing, guaranteed. And so when God says, listen, blessed he who reads and those who hear the words and heed the things which are written in this book, you can count on it, you're going to be blessed. No other book in the Bible promises a blessing for studying it. Although you're blessed when you study all of the word of God, this book guarantees a blessing. As a matter of fact, I promise you that if you stick with it, you're going to be barefoot before we're done. What do you mean barefoot? I mean, I think you're going to have your socks blessed off. (laughs) You're going to be amazed. The study of Revelation will bless your socks off. It guarantees the blessing. And listen to it. It's an exclusive promise for the one who reads it. That's me. (laughs) And the one who hears it. That's you. Because the hearing and the reading, this talks about the public proclamation of this book. The public reading of this. So as we read it together, I get blessed because I'm reading it. It's part of the reason I wanted to teach it again. I need more blessing in my life. You get blessed because you hear it. But gang, all who heed the words of this prophecy, I think are even more blessed. What does it mean to heed? It means to live it out. To walk in it. As we study and understand and learn from this book to apply these things in your life. Revelation, this this book about prophecy and future events and all this other 
bizarre stuff, I can apply that? Absolutely. Heed the words written here, and you will be blessed. Now, there's something else I want you to see in this verse. For it's not only a blessing, it's also a prophecy. In verse 3, John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. The prophecy. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. What does John mean, the prophecy? This is important. And you're going to get some clues here as he just starts out this first chapter about how to understand and study and interpret this book. The book is wholly predictive. It's wholly predictive. It's literally a forecast of what is to come. Gang, it is prehistory already written. Written down for us to understand. Written down for us to see. Uh, flipping your Bible back to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah chapter 44. Because we've talked a lot about here at the bridge the fact that the Bible is a prophecy-packed book. It is full of prophecy throughout. I want you to see a couple of things, a couple of examples of what it means to have something that's prophetic. Because sometimes we misunderstand prophecy. Sometimes our attitude of prophecy is it's what we hope is going to happen. It's what God said was going to happen, but boy, we hope it happens. Hey, prophecy is not something that we hope will happen. As far as God's concerned, prophecy is something that has already happened. It is so absolutely sure. Oh, it hasn't already happened for us, but it has for the Lord, who is the great I Am, who is always present tense, who has sees, sees the whole thing beginning to end all at once. It has happened. So when we read prophecy in the Bible, what God is declaring is not something that hopefully, if it all works out right, will happen. It's happened. You can count on it. No question about it. Isaiah 44, verse 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant, and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. Now watch verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Cyrus. Cyrus. Cyrus was named in Isaiah 150 years before he was born. Cyrus is the one who overthrew Babylon, freeing the Jewish people from their 70 years of captivity and sending them back to Jerusalem. God says 150 years ahead of time, it's I who says of Cyrus, he will be my shepherd. Now while, while Isaiah is writing this down and while he's giving it to the Jewish people, they're going, Cyrus, who's Cyrus? I don't know who Cyrus is. And most of them... All of them probably wouldn't even live to see the day when Cyrus would rise 150 years later. But that's an example. God says it's going to happen, and it happens amazingly. Another book that's incredible is, uh, in fact, to the Old Testament, it is what Revelation is to the New Testament, and that's the book of Daniel. Daniel is an incredible book, an amazing story. And as you study Daniel and read through it, what you end up feeling like is you're reading a history book. But Daniel is not a history book. It's a book of prophecy. But it is so specific, going through, talking about four kingdoms following, three kingdoms following Babylon that would rise. 
And Daniel and his descriptions are so specific that the higher thinkers of today have a lot of trouble accepting Daniel as a book of prophecy. Daniel was written around 530 B.C. and its forecasts are like, again, reading history, not guesswork. But some professors, some scholars, they just can't accept Daniel as authentic. Well, why not? Because it's too good. It's too well written. And so there are people who have said, well, it must have been written around 200 or maybe 150 before Christ. It couldn't have been back in 530 because if it was back in 530, that would be like prophecy. (laughs) To which I say to these scholars, no, duh. (laughs) That's the idea. So this is of great importance in the study and understanding of this book. John says it in the very first verse, flipping back to Revelation chapter 1. He says it is a prophecy. He sets it up from the very beginning. This is future. This is a foretelling. This is predictive of what is to come. Not predictive like so many weathermen, you know, who kind of have a mixture of guesswork and and maybe some fact and some patterns, weather patterns that they're watching. This is predictive in that God has seen it happen. It will happen. And it is future. But let me back up a second. Let me give you four views of Revelation that are out there. The four primary, the major views. There are some other kind of nutty views that get out there. But these are the four primary ones that you might see if you picked up a book on Revelation to study it. Keeping John's proclamation of prophecy in mind, here are the four views. Number one, there's the preterist view. Preterist, if you're taking notes, it's P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Preterist. What does that mean? The preterist view are those who say that the prophecy of Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. And all the terrible things talked about, and there are many terrible things talked about in this book, they say, well, that happened in A.D. 70. That happened a long time ago. This book is written, you know, just talking about those things that happened. The problem is that the book wasn't even written until the mid-90s. And John, at that point, in writing in the mid-90s, 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem, maybe even 25 years after, as he's writing this, he says this is future tense. This is a prophecy of that which is to come. Jesus says of the things which must soon take place, not of the things that just took place. Not of the things that, that we realized took place 20, 30 years ago, but it's future The preterist position begins to fall apart when you just read verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1. There's a second position, and that's the historicist position. Historicist. These are those who maintain that Revelation is a grand panoramic view of all history from the first century church to the second coming of Jesus. It just kind of spreads out over the whole thing. It's not going to all happen toward the end. It all just is spread across that time, but the problem with this view is that historians have been unable to identify precise events in history that would fulfill these prophetic visions. It gets to be uh, a lot of guesswork, a lot of jumping through hoops. It's very difficult to follow the historicist line of thinking. The third way is the symbolic view. The symbolic view. There are those who say that the prophecies of Revelation are spiritual. In fact, a very famous name you may recognize was the first to posit this view, Augustine. St. Augustine, in the Alexandria School of Thought back in around 300-400 AD, began to say, maybe the things in Revelation are metaphorical. Maybe they're spiritual. Because you may recall, and we'll talk about this in depth in, in coming weeks here, in 312 AD, suddenly the church was no longer persecuted. Suddenly, all the persecution that happened stopped. And a man by the name of Constantine said, No, now Christianity is the religion of the state. 
It is the church religion, and it's probably the worst thing that ever could have happened to the church. Oh, the persecution stopped. Sure, that was a good thing. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. The bottom line, gang, is that Augustine and his, and his cronies and several people down the centuries since then have said, well, it's symbolic, it's spiritual, it's metaphorical, it's not literal. Here's the problem with that. Once you go down that road, then you can make the book of Revelation say whatever you want. As a matter of fact, once you go down the road of the symbolic and the metaphorical and not the literal word of God, then you can say God, make God's word say whatever you want it to say. You can change things around. You can even take moral stances in different positions if it's not literal, if it's all spiritualized and symbolic. Well, this brings us to the fourth and correct position. <laughs> the futurist position. Futurist which maintains that Revelation is exactly as it claims to be, a book of prophecy which deals with the things which must soon take place. This literal position allows, and listen to this, it's important, the literal position of the book of Revelation allows the Word of God to be the teacher. It allows God's Word to determine what we believe. It allows His Word to lay it out for us. It doesn't rely on me to try and figure it out, to change it or spiritualize it. It doesn't rely on me to try and work it into history past, or to look at AD 70 and say, okay, well, if, if we say that this is that, well, then this can mean this other thing. It doesn't rely on the guesswork of human beings. If you just read Revelation as it is, taking it literally, it makes sense. All the other ways are a circus. It's like jumping through hoops. It does not make sense. It's important to understand this because some interesting things have happened in the world over the last few years. When I taught Revelation through the first time, just again over two years ago, our culture was experiencing kind of a flash in the pan excitement about the end times. The Left Behind series was hot on the bookshelves, it was pouring off the bookshelves, it was kind of a buzz word in our country. And in churches, not just in churches though, people were really interested in the end times. And you know, we had just crossed the new millennium, things were kind of roll, rolling along, interesting things were happening, the terrorist attacks hit in 2001, and people were very interested, momentarily, in the book of Revelation. Tim LaHaye was a, almost a household name, the writer of the Left Behind series. Here's what's interesting that I've watched happen in the last couple of years. It's turned. People are no longer really interested in it anymore. It seems. Now you all are here, which is a great sign to me that there is still a great interest out there. And I guess anytime you say you're going to be studying the book of Revelation, people kind of go, ooh, like a little bit of that. Well, things have changed. The hunger is waning. And it's being replaced again by skepticism and by Hollywoodism. Uh, what was the um, TV show? Was it just last year called Revelations? That's part of the reason I hate the name Revelations, because it's just wrong. But to play with it and to toy with it and to try and make it something that it's not. And even, gang, it's turned to outright mockery. Some of you may recall this. I mentioned on the, oh, what's the guy's name? The John something show. This comedian? John Stewart? Is that it? Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The John Stewart show. They were doing a whole mockery of the rapture of the church. I mean, there's a whole skit that was going on about people's clothes being left there and, and, and how... I watched for about five minutes and I could not believe my eyes because it was absolute mockery, just making fun of the whole thing. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 tells us, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, it all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, we're not boiling down to an end point. 
The world's just going to keep going on as it always has. After all, if the world is 6.4 billion years old, according to evolutionists, well, who's to say we won't have another 6.4 billion years before us? Why worry? Relax. Relax. Just live your life. Nothing's changed. Mockery. Gang, this blessing, this prophecy becomes even more relevant and important as each day draws us nearer the final goal. As Paul says in Romans 13.11, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. And as we now open up Revelation, and I'm thinking, get to, I'm getting to teach it again. We are nearer to the coming of Christ than we were the first time I taught through this book. That excites me. I wasn't sure we were going to make it through the book the first time. I'm less sure now. By the way, let me just ask a question. How many of you think that Jesus is going to come tonight before we finish our study? Let me see a show of hands. Okay. I've got some people who are absolutely ready, but even your hand was only out sideways. Got right up there. You know what's great about that? The Bible says that Jesus is coming, the Son of Man is coming, at a time where you do not think he will. Which tells me because none of us raised our hands, he may be here tonight. <laughs> now, beyond the truth of prophecy and blessing, there are several exclusive features in the book of Revelation that I want to talk to you about that are there's things to be excited about. I love exclusive features. If, you, uh, if you're a DVD fan, I've got like way too many. In fact, I'm thinking if you know, the church didn't work out, I'll just open up my own little Rick Buster store because we've got a lot of DVDs. But I buy the DVDs with the special features. You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy with the four discs each, and you can just sit there for hours watching how they painted Gollum, and you know, it's just bizarre stuff. But there are special features in the book of Revelation. Special features that make this book, in my opinion, the best book to be studying out of all the scriptures. And here they are. I'm going to give you seven of them. Seven exclusive features about this book. Number one, it is unique in the New Testament. It is unique to the New Testament. What do you mean by that? There are 17 books of prophecy in the Old Testament. 17 specifically prophecy-oriented books. Now, there are other books in the Old Testament that have prophecy in them. But there are 17 books that are 100% about prophecy. In the New Testament, Revelation is the only one. Again, there are other books in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, different places, uh, Matthew chapter 24. There are places all over the New Testament where prophecy is given, verses or passages that are prophetic. But the book of Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that is a book of prophecy. So it's completely unique. Number two, Pastor John. Pastor John, the one who received and wrote the Revelation, reaches further back and further forward than any other biblical writer, Old and New Testament combined. He goes further back to the beginning and further out to the end than any of them do. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote Revelation. And you might want to jot a few extra things down about John. He writes about the inauguration. John wrote about the inauguration. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The inauguration. When it all began. John wrote about that. And John also writes about creation. Creation. Following the inauguration, the fact that Jesus was in the beginning with God, that He was God. John chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, All things came into being through Him, speaking of Jesus, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John says Jesus was, you know, at the inauguration of all things. 
Jesus was in the creation of all things. It was done through him and by him and for him. John also writes, number three, about the incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The inauguration, the creation, the incarnation. John also writes about the transition. That is the times between the times. What we will come to know and understand and see better as the church age or the age of grace. I mentioned that this morning. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. John wrote, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And then he says, children, it is the last hour. John writes in his books about the transition, the period that we're in. That time after the incarnation, but before the next thing that John will ultimately write about in Revelation, and that is the consummation. The consummation of all things. Bringing it all together in one package we can understand. And that, by the way, is the book of Revelation. It is the consummation. You will find, as we study through this, that you will spend more time in the rest of the Bible than you possibly ever have in the study of a single book. It is amazing. If I had it to choose, if I was going to sit down with someone and teach them, someone who is a brand new believer, never read any of the Bible before, just, just heard enough to believe in Jesus, I would choose the book of Revelation. Because this book takes you everywhere. If you've studied it, you know you cannot get through this book without studying the entire Bible at the same time. It's awesome. And it's a lot of fun. We're going to be doing that. But it's the consummation that John finally gets to write about. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So, number one, the, it's unique to the New Testament. First feature, second feature, Pastor John reaches further back and farther forward than any other biblical writer. Number three on our list of, of special features. In addition to the blessing, Revelation is the only book that declares a warning. A warning attached specifically to this book. And this is the one that always makes me a little nervous. Let me read it to you. Revelation 22, verse 18. I testify, John, writing to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Our goal as we study it, okay, it's not to add to Revelation. It's not to put anything more into it than is already there. But it's also not to take away from it anything that God wants us to see and understand. There will be some hard nights of study. And when I say hard, I don't mean hard as in tiring and taxing. It's fun. It's amazing. And you, you will be blessed. But there are some things that will come up in this book that will make you uncomfortable. It will place you in a position of, of fearing at times even for the lives of friends and relatives who maybe today do not know Jesus. It will motivate you in a way maybe you've never been motivated before. But we're going to cover all of it. And we're not going to mince words. We're not going to leave things out because they may be difficult. We're going to cover every inch of this book because I don't want any of the curses. Number four. <laughs> Number four. It is a timeline of vision 
expressed in symbols, grounded in reality. I'll read that again. It's a timeline of vision, expressed in symbols, grounded in reality. Last time for you note takers, and I'm really glad to see you taking notes. This is the best thing to do in understanding this book. It's a timeline of vision expressed in symbols, grounded in reality. Expressed in symbols? Well, wait a minute, Rick. Didn't you just say we're supposed to read this literally? And take it literally? Absolutely. Let me give you the key to understanding and studying this book. The literal interpretation is always best. It's always preferred. Unless John makes it clear otherwise. If John gives a symbol, he will tell you it's a symbol. If John speaks in a metaphor, he will tell you it's a metaphor. Now, I'll tell you something that's kind of funny. Again, the last time I taught this book, I made a lot of assumptions the first time around. Because I had studied the book myself, but I never taught the book. And as I went through teaching it, and, and having just freshly studied it myself, and it was all just new and, and, and bouncing around in my brain, I, I literally, and I believe it was the first night that we studied this first chapter, I said, now, John's going to explain it all. If he doesn't, it's literal, but otherwise he's going to explain it all. And I remember saying that and thinking, I hope he explains it all. I really hope I'm right on this. I mean, I, I was jumping out there. I had to, because I had to believe that God wasn't going to leave us guessing with this book. And so I remember saying that. It's funny, I, I've told people before, in fact I said it back during that series, that I felt like a preschool teaching a graduate school class. A preschooler. Or a kindergartner teaching graduate school. So you'll be glad to hear that I now feel like a first grader. <laughs> so we've moved up in the world. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 tells us the following. That great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Well, we see a metaphor, a picture, a symbol. A great dragon. But John immediately says, that great dragon, it's Satan. He will do this throughout the book. And it's fascinating. We've come across something that just seems amazing, and then John will say, oh, and by the way, the beast out of the sea is, and I'm not going to tell you, we'll find that out later. He'll say, by the way, the lampstand is, and we'll find that out later. But he always does that. He always explains the metaphor. Otherwise, it's not a metaphor. Otherwise, it's literal. When he talks about the cherubim in chapter 4, and it is amazing, the description of these angels. And I would still love to see one of these cherubim hanging on someone's Christmas tree. Because it is nothing like the angels that we have on our Christmas trees. I, I guarantee that. Number five on our list of, of benefits, on our list of special features for Revelation. Number five, again, it is the consummation of all prophetic scripture. Now understand, Revelation does not originate or begin. It consummates and concludes. You're not going to come across all of a sudden, and it may be new to you, but there's nothing new in Revelation. Nothing new. God has talked about this stuff from the very beginning. It is all over the pages of Scripture. It's just that at the end here, God brings it all together and says, let me show you in one fell swoop what all of this has meant before. It's the consummation of all prophetic Scripture. Now remember feature number three, going back, the warning that the book of Revelation excludes any further so-called revelations. That God doesn't leave the door open for more revelations to come later. He doesn't do it. Once the last line, the last uh, letter of Revelation was penned and John hit that, that period, 
Actually, he didn't because there aren't periods in, in Greek. But the last letter that he wrote, that was it. As far as God's concerned, the book is closed. That's the revelation. Anything that comes after that is not from God. It's not from God. Whether that be Islam from 600 years after Jesus, whether that be Mormonism some 200 years ago, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed, and God doesn't leave it to chance. When the revelation is finished, that's it. This is the revelation. Number six on our list. Number six on our list of features. Revelation marks the perfect contrast to the book of Genesis. And this is really cool. And I'll try and do this slow enough so you can jot it down. But watch what happens in Genesis versus what happens in Revelation. In the book of Genesis, the earth was created. In the book of Revelation, the earth will pass away. I don't know if I can do this slow enough for, for your note taker, so just take it in shorthand. In the book of Genesis, the sun, the, st- the moon, and the stars were made, made to govern the earth. In the book of Revelation, the sun, the moon, and the stars are used to judge the earth. In Genesis, we see Satan's first attempt to tempt. In Revelation, we're going to see Satan's last attempt to tempt, and it's frightening. It's stunning, it's unbelievable when it happens. In Genesis, we're going to see the entrance of sin. In Revelation, we will watch the final exodus of sin. In Genesis, the curse was given. In Revelation, the curse is forever removed. In Genesis, the tree of life, the tree of life is removed. But in Revelation, the tree of life returns. And we will feed on that tree forever. In Genesis... Death enters the picture. In Revelation, death leaves for good. It's so interesting to read that Revelation teaches that death itself is thrown into the eternal lake of fire, never to touch man again. Awesome. In Genesis, we see the marriage of Adam and Eve. In Revelation, we see the marriage of Jesus and his bride. It's you. In Genesis, we see man's city, Babylon, being built. In Revelation, we see Babylon destroyed and God's city, the new Jerusalem, displayed, coming down out of heaven. In Genesis, Satan's doom is pronounced. In Revelation, Satan's doom is executed. What a day that'll be. And in Genesis, we see the beginning of sorrow. In Revelation, the end of sorrow. The end of sorrow. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 22 verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Revelation number 6, again, marks the perfect contrast to the book of Genesis. Number 7 on our list of features, the final one, this book is an open page. What do you mean by that? I mean it's not sealed. This book was not written to be sealed. Other books have been sealed in the past. The book of Daniel that I mentioned before was sealed. Daniel chapter 12 verse 4. Daniel is told, as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. 
What's interesting is that the book of Daniel has been unsealed. It has been unsealed. The seal has been broken on that book. It's another study for another time. But gang, Revelation did it. When John received the revelation from Jesus, the book of Daniel immediately became unsealed. Because the book of Daniel is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. We'll see that as we go through the study. An understanding of Daniel makes an understanding of Revelation so much better. And so we'll pick out verses and we'll go back to Daniel and we'll see many things as we're going through this. But Daniel unlocks Revelation because Revelation unsealed Daniel. How do you know we're living in the end times, Rick? You talk about that a lot. You talk about Bible prophecy and that we're in the times of the end. How, how, why do you believe that? One of the reasons is because Daniel is unsealed. Because this book is now understandable to us. And God told Daniel, seal it up until the end of time. And then it will be unsealed. The book is unsealed. By the way, the word revelation itself. The word revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis. Sound familiar? Apocalypse. And it doesn't mean a big Martin Scorsese film. And it doesn't mean a horrible happening. And it doesn't mean the explosion of planet Earth. Apocalypsis simply means an unveiling. Literally to remove the covering or to take the lid off. Some of you know this, and I've mentioned it before, a dark lie has been circulated about Revelation. I'm glad that you all are here tonight because it shows you don't believe the lie. It's a lie from the pit, from the one the Bible calls the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And the lie is simply this, that the book of Revelation is mysterious. It's confounding. It's hard to understand. It's a difficult book, best left to the scholars. And best left to the priests and the pastors and those who have time to really sit down and study this. Don't you mess with that. Just know that Jesus is coming and that's all you really have to know. And the problem is, friends, that if all we do is just leave Jesus coming to chance and leave out our understanding, we lose the blessing. We don't get the blessing of this book. Furthermore, it does nothing to change our lives. A study of Revelation, a focus on the end times, impacts you every day. It changes every step you take. It invigorates your spirituality gain in a way nothing else will. I promise you this. That you get excited and passionate. I wouldn't be here doing the Bridge Christian Fellowship if it weren't for that first Revelation study. Because by the time we got to the end of that study, after studying it and studying it and reading it and teaching it, I sat there and I went, Lord, you know what? Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is important. Just doing whatever we can do to reach as many people because the days are short. And that's why, part of the reason why the bridge is here. Also because of a combination of other people who understood that days are short and lives need to be saved. And people are lost. And we are on the juggernaut and it is coming to a conclusion. The book of Revelation is not confusing. It is not mysterious. It's not hard to figure out. It's one of the easiest books actually in the entire Bible to understand if you let the Bible guide you. Now flip to the end of Revelation chapter 22 and look at verse 10. Revelation 22 verse 10. Listen to what the angel tells John. Read it along with me, if you will. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. One more time, read that together. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal it up. As recently as a year ago, 
There is a pastor who shall rename, name, remain nameless down in Oak Harbor who made the comment, oh, I, I don't teach the book of Revelation to my people. It's just too confusing. From my reading, the Lord says, don't seal it up. Don't you dare seal this book up. Don't hide it away from the people. Don't hide it away from your friends. And by the way, if you want a great Bible study to invite a non-believing friend to, it's this one. Bring them on Sunday night. Oh, you're kidding me, Rick. That's going to be in-depth and serious. And, and you're, you said you were going to hit even the tough stuff in there. Yeah. You bring a non-believer in here, and you will greatly increase the chances that they will become a believer by the study of this book. We saw it happen last time. Hank and Cindy Satinga, Hank playing the, the guitar, gave his life to the Lord, and he came to the book of Revelation. This is a guy who wasn't going to church anywhere at the time. Showed up to an in-depth Bible study of Revelation. Are you kidding? Yeah, he came, and he gave his life to the Lord. And now he's serving God every Sunday morning with incredible music. What a blessing Hank is, isn't he? Well... Revelation is not difficult. It's not hard to understand. Far too many people, far too many pastors seal up this book, and it is not to be sealed. Jesus gave us the unveiling to blow the lid off our confusion, not to add to it. And so we read this book expecting to understand it. Now, go back again to chapter 1. Like I said, this book is not a mystery. It's not confounding. It's not esoteric. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible, and you're going to hear me say this a lot, it's the only book in the Bible that comes with its own divine outline. It has an outline built into it. An outline that if you can get this, if you can grab this, hang on to it, even memorize this specific verse, you will have the outline for the whole book, and it opens up and it becomes easy. Easy to understand. Almost too easy. It's amazing. Revelation 1.19 Revelation 1.19, Jesus is speaking to John and he says, well, let's go back to verse 17, that's kind of fun. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John was floored, blown away. And he placed his right hand on me, John writes, saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of, the, of death and of Hades. Therefore, and here's your outline, Revelation 1.19, therefore, write... Number one, the things which you have seen. Number two, and the things which are. Number three, and the things which will take place after these things. There's the outline. Well, what does that mean, Rick? Well, it's very simple. The things which you have seen. Write this down, John, Jesus is saying. Write down the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Here's a simple way of understanding this. The things which you have seen. At the moment Jesus said this, what had John just seen? Look at chapter 1. Skim it. What had John seen when Jesus said, write what you have seen? Jesus appearing. He had just seen Jesus in his glorified state. We're going to start studying that next week. We'll start right back at the beginning of chapter 1 and move through. And we will see Jesus in his glorified state. And it is awesome. It's incredible. In fact, for next week, your homework assignment is read chapter 1. Read it over and over. Look at it. Think about it. Ponder it. What is it saying to us? John, when Jesus said, write the things that you have seen, had just seen Jesus in his glorified state. So Jesus says, write it down. That's the deal. Chapter 1. You might want to note this. Chapter 1 tells us the person of Jesus Christ. This is what John had seen. It's the first part of the outline. You've seen me glorified, John. Write it down. The person of Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. Verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And the voice was saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair and his head were, like, were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which were made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Think about Niagara Falls. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face, it was like the sun shining in its strength. And then John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Yeah, you did, John. Jesus and his glorified state, mind-blowing, and that's the first part of the outline. You saw that, John. Write the things which you have seen, the person of Jesus Christ. Second part of the outline, write the things which are. The things which are. John, I want you to write down the things with are, which are. Now, speaking, and I'm going to use a big word here, dispensationally. Speaking dispensationally. Dispensation simply means there are different epochs of time throughout history. Different specific times where God worked in specific ways. We're studying in Leviticus right now. The dispensation in Leviticus is the Mosaic dispensation. It's that time where God gave the law to Israel and was working through Israel trying to teach them that they couldn't keep the law. That's a dispensation. What dispensation, what age was John in at the time he received this revelation? The church. The church had begun. Again, this is the late 90s. The church had been rolling on now for... 60 years or so? 55, 60 years, right around there? John was at the front end of the church age. Jesus says, write the things which are. John, write down what's happening right now. Write it down. What do you mean, Lord? Second part of the outline, the church age. What is that? It's the people of Jesus Christ. First part of the outline, the things which you have seen, the person of Jesus Christ. Second part of the outline, the things which are the people of Jesus Christ. What do you mean by that? Chapters 2 and 3. And we'll see this as we walk through this. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation give us a picture, a broad picture, an amazing picture of the church age. Now, if you begin in chapter 2, verse 1, you see that a letter is written. In fact, there are seven letters written over these two chapters. To the angel in the church of Ephesus. Down in verse 8, you see, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And down in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Skipping on down to verse 18 of chapter 2, to the angel in the church of Thyatira, write this message. Beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis. And then verse 7, to Philadelphia. And then verse 14 of chapter 3, to the church in Laodicea, write to these seven churches. Now we're going to get into these, and they're fascinating. Seven churches that existed in Asia at the time, in Asia Minor, what's now modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches were literally along a Jewish or um, a Roman postal route, and so it would be easy to transfer this letter to the seven churches. Why the seven churches? Why only these churches specifically called out? Was this revelation? Maybe we shouldn't be studying it. Was it just for these seven churches, or is there more to it? What you will see, amazingly, is that if you overlay these seven churches across the last 2,000 years of church history, you see seven ages, seven epochs, 
of the church. And it's awesome. And it's mind-blowing, and it doesn't take a lot of guesswork. In fact, it's very simple to see. And we're going to see that as we get into chapters 2 and 3. The second part of the outline, the things which are. 7 in the Bible, you know, it's a number of completion. And so these seven churches speak literally of seven time periods of the church age in its entirety. And I believe we're at the tail end of that. In fact, we're in the age of Laodicea, and that's not something to be excited about. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll talk about that. So chapters 2 and 3 explain the things which are part 2 of the outline. Church history unfolding. But you've got to understand that the church, the church as we know it, has an end point. There will come a time when the church will cease to exist as it does today. What do you mean by that? When that last person responds to Jesus' call to eternal salvation, the church is going to be pulled out. The church will be taken up. Oh, you're, you're one of those uh, rapture people. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about why. And it's not for any reason other than it is so clear in the scriptures. There is coming a day, very soon, hopefully sooner rather than later, possibly tonight, there is coming a time when Jesus is going to pull us out. He's going to take the church out. Boom, it'll be over. And there's going to be someone who all eternity will know they were the last one. How cool would that be? Man, I just made it. <laughs> but I'm here, man. And what's this veil over my face? I'm like a bride or something. This is incredible. The church age is going to end at that point. And I really wonder who that last person is going to be. Is it somebody that you know? Is it a brother or a sister, mother or father? Is it a child, son or daughter? Is it a friend of yours at work who one day, for reasons unbeknownst to you, you just say, man, you just need Jesus. And you walk out of the room and the person gets saved. And then Jesus comes. Who's it going to be? You know, that question needs to be on our hearts a little more often these days, I think. Who's it going to be? Who do I know? that might be keeping the rest of us, as I said this morning, from going to heaven now. <laughs> Who's that last person? Well, Jesus tells John to write that three-part outline, the things which you have seen, number two, the things which are, and finally, he writes the things which will take place after these things. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, running all the way to the end of, the Re of Revelation, after these things. It's the prophetic plan of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 already happened. John saw Jesus glorified. Chapters 2 and 3, we are in the church age, tail end, but we are in chapter 3 right now. I mean, in life. That's where we can position ourselves in this book. But beginning with chapter 4, verse 1, and running all the way to chapter 22 in Revelation, it is all that which will take place after these things. When does the Lord's prophetic program kick into place? After these things. There's a Greek phrase you need to know. One of Russ's favorite phrases in the world. You know the phrase, Russ? Metatauta. Write this down. M-E-T-A. You just need to know this. You might want to put it in your, in your Bible right next to you after these things. Or, or write it down in your notes. Metatauta. M-E-T-A. The second word is T-A-U-T-A. -A. That's our English version of the Greek phrase. Metatauta. Metatauta is important. Because it literally means after these things. That's what metatauta is, after these things. The phrase metatauta, after these things, will appear eight times in the book of Revelation. Every time it appears, it signals a moving of the student along the narrative. It takes you to the next thing. 
something has just happened, and then John writes after these things, and boom, you're on to the next thing. And so this book starts rolling. When you get into chapter 4, verse 1, it just starts to move and move and move. And you just finish one thing, and John says, after these things, you're like, oh, we're still going. And it's exciting, and it's awesome, but it is so important to understand this phrase, metatauta. It is the hinge phrase in the book of Revelation. It's where things change direction. Let me show you this. Again, John says, in, uh, or Jesus says to John in 119, Part 3 of the outline, the things which will take place after these things. Now you might say, well, how do you know at the end of chapter 3 that all of a sudden now you're into the third part of the outline? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. I'll read this verse to you. After these things. Oh, that's interesting. It's the first time the phrase is used. Since chapter 1, verse 19. Suddenly, boom, here it is, after these things. But you know what? Just in case we missed it, John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, that is Jesus' voice, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me and saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. When? After these things. John doesn't want you to miss it. Jesus doesn't want you to miss it. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, After these things, two times. Metatauta, metatauta. We're changing direction, folks. After these things, write this, John. This is the third part of the outline. When you get to chapter 4, verse 1, everything changes. Now, we will study chapter 4 through 22, Lord willing. But we will not experience chapter... Well, we will experience chapters 4 and 5. We will not experience chapters 6 through 19. What in the world are you talking about, Rick? Well, you'll get it. You'll get it. Just, you'll get it. After these things. What is after these things? It's the prophetic plan of Jesus playing out. It's after church history. Here's an easy way to remember it. Four always comes after three. Doesn't it? The number four comes after number three. Chapter four comes after chapter three. After these things, you head into chapter four and everything changes. And again in chapter four, verse one, John hears this voice like a trumpet saying, come up here, (laughs) which is what we're going to hear. It's what we're going to hear. I'm convinced of it. It's the phrase that Jesus will use. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we shall always be with the Lord. So listen, if you hear the phrase, come up here and it's coming from above, jump or something. (laughs) You won't have to. You won't have to. Talk about being blessed out of your socks. You're going to go when Jesus says, come up here. And I love that. It's, it's so, there's something so fatherly about it. You know? A father saying to his kids in the pool, come up here. Get out of the pool. Enough swimming. We've got better stuff to do today. Come up here. I say that to Corey sometimes. He's downstairs in his bedroom and he's playing Nintendo. And I say, Corey, come up here. Come up here. Just a minute, Dad. No, now. Come up here. And Jesus is going to wait. In fact, we're going to be pulled out so fast. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Oh, it's a freaky movie. Alien movie. Um, what was it called? The, uh, the Missing. Did you ever see The Missing? There's a scene in this movie that freaked me out, like, to no end. I'm sitting in the theater with Cheryl. We're watching this thing. And it's all about, basically, alien abduction. Which, by the way... Alien abduction is Satan's way of trying to prepare the world for the rapture of the church. 
church is going to go. We're going to be pulled out. And people left behind are going to be going, it must be Amy. That's what it is. And Satan will go, that movie, The Missing, that, 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 yeah, that was great. What happens, there's a scene in the movie where this, this female cop is walking over to this other woman and, and her, I won't get into the whole plot line, but it, it's an incredible special effect and almost frightening. She's walking across and coming up to her and all of a sudden, boom, she's just pulled up into the sky and she's gone. I mean, it's just, and I saw it and I went, that's like the rapture. It's going to be like that. The rapture. The rapture. Well, the rapture is, and we'll talk about it quite a bit, especially when we get to chapter 4. The rapture, that, that phrase rapture, people say, well, I don't see that in the Bible. Well, it's in there. First Thessalonians 4.16, the phrase caught up. In the Latin, it's raptus. That's where we get the English word rapture. If you don't like it, call it the harpazo. That's the Greek word for being caught up. It means literally to be snatched out, to be almost violently taken out. I mean, to be breathless. We're gone. And the next thing we know, in the twinkling of an eye, we're in the presence of the Lord, Paul says, there to be with Him forever. Awesome. Incredible. So immediately after these things, part three of the outline kicks in. After the church age, God will call up His church saying, come up here. Now chapters 4 and 5, in this last part of the outline, just so you may want to jot this down, chapters 4 and 5, we get an amazing picture of the church present in heaven. How do you know it's the church, Rick? You'll see it when we get there. But the church is there, in heaven, represented by John, who is caught up, literally, as a picture. John is almost a representation, in verse 1 of chapter 4, of the church. He hears this voice, he's caught up, next thing he knows, he's in heaven. And he's seeing these things that will happen after these things. He's seeing something that will happen in the future. God gives him an eye to the future. But then we come to chapter 6. Chapter 6 in the book of Revelation, all the way to chapter 19, the world, without the church, enters the tribulation. The tribulation. It is that time the Bible calls the 70th week of Daniel. For in Daniel chapter 9, it's the last of 70 weeks that is yet to be fulfilled. We'll talk about that too. There's a, we have a lot to talk about. I, I don't know if you're picking that up. But the Bible also calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Why is that? A couple of things to note about the tribulation. Chapter 6 through 19, it is boot camp for the Hebrew. It's boot camp for the Hebrew. What do you mean? It's when Israel is going to really feel God's boot. Okay? God is going to start relating to His people Israel once again like He did in the Old Testament. This is stiff-necked people. This is a characteristic of the, the Jewish people. And I'm not meaning to be offensive, but if you spend any time talking with Frank, you know. This is just... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding, Frank. <laughs> It's a stiff-necked people, though. And how did God deal with Israel all through the Old Testament? We're already seeing some of it. He had to discipline them, and discipline them harshly. He had northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes, taken off into Assyrian captivity because they were totally gone on idol worship. He had the southern tribe of Judah taken into Babylonian captivity because they refused to keep the Sabbaths that He told them to keep. And so God said, hey, here are the rules. If you break the rules, there is a punishment. Father to son. Parent to child. That's how God had to deal with Israel, which makes the age of grace so much more amazing, doesn't it? That God stepped back and says, alright, I love you. Accept the death of my son and walk in my grace. Now Hebrews 12 tells us the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. 
But the Lord will, in true Old Testament fashion, speak to the stiff-necked people through discipline, and they will get it. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 13. God says, Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and I will be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath on them. Them who? Israel. God is going to pour out wrath and He's going to take them into boot camp and they're going to feel His boot. Matthew 24, verse 21. Jesus says, Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Some people have mistakenly thought that the elect in that verse is Christians. But gang, in the Great Tribulation, the Christians are not present. They're gone. The elect in Matthew 24, verse 22, and, or verse 22, the elect is Israel, who is called the elect in numerous other places throughout Scripture. They are the elect. And if not for the elect... For the sake of the elect, those days would not have been cut short. So Jesus is saying ahead of time, there is a great tribulation coming. And it is going to negatively impact the elect, Israel. But it's also going to be cut short for the sake of Israel. And Ezekiel 39, verse 28. God says, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Because I made them go into exile among the nations. And then, and then, gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer. For I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. So it's boot camp for the Hebrew, the tribulationist. Another reason for the tribulation, chapter 6 through 19. Another reason is it's brat camp for the heathen. Have you seen that show, Brat Camp? It was on just last year. It was one of the many reality shows out there. Brat Camp, where parents who are at the end of their rope, having children who are completely out of control, send them to Brat Camp. They go and they live there, maybe three, four months, maybe six months. And they stay there and they are disciplined. And they work hard. And they have very harsh rules and harsh structure for getting to the point where ultimately they can even see their parents in a visitation, much less be released from Brat Camp. Are you thinking about it for, uh, for Connor? Good idea. Yeah, I see Harold's got his arm on Connor's shoulder. He's going, son, Brat Camp. Brat Camp. Gang, it's going to be Brat Camp for the heathen. What do you mean? It is tough love for a hardened world. Now, a lot of people, when they read about the, the tribulation, they think, okay, it's just God pouring out his wrath, and that's it, and he's just taking the world apart bit by bit, and he's just angry, just hammering away. Well, you're going to see something that blew my mind the first time I saw it. During the tribulation, when God is hammering away with discipline, he is pulling all the stops of grace out and giving people every possible opportunity to be saved. He will call up two witnesses. I believe it's Elijah and Moses. And he'll have them preaching literally out of Jerusalem. He's going to raise up 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams to be preaching the word of God. He is at one point going to have an angel flying throughout the heavens saying, Follow the Lord. Don't take the mark of the beast. Follow Jesus. Give your life to him. You're, you're short on chances. Pulling out all the stops. Because even while disciplining, even while pouring out His wrath on the world, God is saying, I want to save everyone that I can. There will be some people saved in the tribulation. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us there will be a harvest. Unlike any evangelistic campaign we have ever seen in the church age, God is going to save thousands. You'll see that in this book as well. It's Brat Camp for the heathen. Twice... 
Twice in 15 years of youth ministry, I watched parents send their kids to this sort of situation. Sending their kids off to a brat camp of sorts, to wilderness interventions to stop them in their self-destructive behavior. Why? Because it is the final act of a desperate parent. And that is partially what the tribulation is. The final act of God. And I hate to say it, but almost in desperation to save anybody who he possibly can through whatever means necessary. For though that seven year period of the tribulation is awful, it's unimaginable, and you don't want to be here, even though all of that is going on, God through it will be saying, I want to save you. And I will take you through seven years of hell if it means that you can spend the rest of eternity with me. He will pour out his discipline. Boot camp for the Hebrew, brat camp for the heathen. And that's the tribulation. And this is the age of grace, as I said. The church age, the time of man's choice. Well, at the end of chapter 19, something else happens. We're still talking about after these things, the prophetic, the future things that are to come. Chapter 19, the last part of it, we will witness, we will see, reading in this, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And it's awesome. And guess what? You get to come back with him. We'll talk about that later. Chapter 20, we'll see the millennium. That prophesied 1,000 years of peace where you, as believers today, and this seems amazing, but it's true. You will rule and reign with Jesus here in that time of peace and prosperity for a thousand years. Rick, that sounds kind of wacky. I didn't write it. It's right here. But that's going to be followed again by a final judgment for all who decide to live by their deeds instead of living by grace. And then the earth is destroyed, and finally, wonderfully, eternally, chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book, there will be an ushering in of the new Jerusalem. We read a little bit about that this morning. Coming down as a bride out of heaven, new Jerusalem, and there will be the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Why a new heaven and a new earth? Because the old heaven and the old earth will have corruption in it, will have been corrupt, will have had the footprints of Satan, and God is going to start over from scratch. He is going to create something out of nothing. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Again, you think we have it pretty in the Northwest? This is like Death Valley compared to what God is going to bring. And there's a description of it that is so amazing, it'll leave you breathless. Revelation 1.19, the divine outline. Therefore write, the things which you have seen, the person of Jesus Christ. The things which are the people of Jesus Christ. And number three, the things which take place, or which will take place, metatalgia, after these things. And that is the outline for the book, after these things, the prophetic plan of Jesus Christ. Revelation is linear. It's progressive. It's a prehistory that rumbles onward, always forward, like a great juggernaut to the ultimate and final return of Jesus Christ as Messiah in all his glory. When I was a kid, there was a t-shirt out there. And if you ever see it, buy it for me, I'll pay it back. It was the coolest Christian t-shirt I have ever seen in my life. I loved it. I think I've mentioned it to a few of you before. All it was was a picture of a couple of old ratty Converse tennis shoes. High tops. And they were kind of unlaced. And sitting there and kind of a, a whoosh coming up out of them. And it just said in the twinkling of an eye. I love that. I mean, I went right out and bought a pair of Converse. And, you know. <laughs> and I wore them out. If you ever see that t-shirt, get it for me. In the twinkling of an eye. Gang, I am praying for each of you and for myself for the barefoot blessing. 
praying that Revelation will knock our socks off, preparing us for that time when our socks will be ripped right off our feet in the rapture of the church. And I want to encourage you as we study this to look forward, not just to the next chapter, but to the coming of Jesus. Look forward to him. Luke 21, 28, Jesus said, straighten up. <laughs> straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And as I said to you earlier, this is a great study to bring friends to. And it's not just a pastor trying to increase attendance. That's not important. That's not what matters. What matters is hearts. And if you know of someone who this might just be a curiosity for them, bring them. Because they will hear things that will rattle their cage and prayerfully change their lives. Last night we had a new member's uh, dessert at my house, had a good time, had a lot of fun. If, if you are somewhat new, not new members, newcomers, i got to get my wording right because we don't have members, you know, they're here, you're just, you know, you're here. But we had newcomers dessert at my house and we were sitting around talking kind of about the history of the bridge and some things that had happened. It was a, a fun conversation. And as we talked, um, Barb was sharing a little bit about the anticipation that she had prior to even meeting my family or anyone who was part of that original church plant. Their family just had this sense, and they talked about it quite a bit, that something big was coming. Something, God was going to do something here on their property. They weren't even thinking about a church. They had no idea what, what God was lining, lining up for them. But they just had this idea, something big was coming. And I said last night, and I will say to you now, the Bridge Christian Fellowship is not it. This is not the something big that is coming. This is a step along the way. This is a little something that God has started up. Hopefully to bless you. It has certainly been blessing me. But this is not the thing that's coming. This is not the anticipation. The big event that's coming will start with that shout. Come up here and we will go. You know, there's nothing else on God's prophetic calendar in the Bible that has to happen before the rapture. Everything that has needed to happen has happened. Everything. So the next thing that God's got on the playlist is come up here. The rapture of the church. And we will go. We will be gone in the twinkling of an eye. So as we get ready next week to crack, crack open the pages of this great book and to really get into verse by verse study of the revelation of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you again, are you ready? Are you ready? I'm not talking about the study of this book. <laughs> are you ready for Jesus to call you home are you ready to go have you believed in your heart and received him as your Lord and your Savior have you confessed with your mouth Christ is Lord have you been baptized expressing in that outward way obedience to Jesus and if not why not what's held you back What's slowing you in your walk with the Lord? 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And the last line of the book of Revelation, my favorite verse in the Bible. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Father, we just thank you so much for this book. Oh, we anticipate next week. We look forward to, to pouring over these things, to understanding what you have for us, to learning it, not being afraid, not being confounded or confused, but simply reading this book as it is written to unveil your plan for us. And Father, I pray you already will begin blessing us. Show us each what the blessing in our lives will be for the reading, the study, the hearing, the heeding of this book. 
And God, by extension, would you bless not only the British Christian Fellowship, but any fellowship that comes in contact with the book of Revelation. And I pray, Father, that... Lord, I pray that you can rattle this area enough that maybe some other churches will not be afraid to open up and study this book. Because we see in it the answers, the consummation of all things. Lord, thank you for tonight. Bless all of my friends and family here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.